Once again, we hear God's Word, the New Testament lesson from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. The days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then the Old Testament lesson from which our sermon comes is found in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 through 18, that is chapter 18, verse 27. And that is found on page 59 of your Pew Bibles. Once again, we hear the Old Testament lesson from Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, through chapter 18, verse 27. Brothers and sisters, this too is the word of God. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Raphadim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro the priest of Midian... Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gerashom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. 
Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge, judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit around alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring, them ca- bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place uh, such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter, they decided themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. The word of God so far, let us pray that God would bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would be attentive to your word now. Help us to attend upon it diligently, uh, to hear the law convicting us of our sin, and also to hear the gospel convicting us of eternal life in Christ alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ and Friends. Many professed Christians today believe that since they are saved, that they have little or nothing at all to learn from non-Christians or really from the general creation itself. Well, the story before you argues that Moses learns from common wisdom and applies that wisdom to the church. And on that basis, we learn that we are to learn from non-Christians and from the creation itself. That is imperative. So the point of the sermon is this. God's will is found not only in special revelation, which would be an example of God's word today, but also in general revelation, that is the world, the creation. And this is so because God saves and maintains his people in the creation, not outside of the creation on some strange planet or in a different time-space continuum. He saves his people, he maintains them, he shepherds them in this world, in this creation. Therefore, Christians learn certainly from the Word of God, special revelation, but they also learn from the creation itself, and even non-Christians. 
So first, to understand how God reveals His will for His people through special revelation. Second, you understand how God reveals His will for His people through general revelation. And third, you understand that God reveals His will through these two means because God's people exist in the creation, which speaks of common wisdom, and they exist in the church, which speaks of God's special acts of redemption, His special revelation. So we begin with the fact that God reveals His will, what He wants His people to do, through special revelation. Special revelation refers to the way in which God reveals His will for His people's salvation through supernatural means. This we understand in the Old Testament. We see this through such things as theophanies. A theophany is a visible appearance of God, such as God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. That's special. Uh, We understand it through things uh, such as miracles and divine speech, God speaking to his people directly. So you'll notice in the book of Exodus, God often speaks to his people, to Moses' servant, in a supernatural way. The burning bush is a great example. Moses is shepherding sheep in the desert. All of a sudden he sees a burning bush. It's God in the bush, as it were, speaking to Moses. Also, God speaks directly to Moses in a type of conversation. You see this often in different texts. Well, because Moses is God's chosen servant to liberate Israel from Egypt and bring them to Mount Sinai, he is privileged to speak with God. We don't see that same sort of privilege today. Special revelation today is only in the Word of God, the Bible. But uh, during Old Testament times, uh, God spoke to Moses and he acted also through Moses. So the way in which God uh, acts through Moses, a great example would be when Moses holds up his hand, his staff, and splits the Red Sea into two. The Red Sea splits and the people of God go through the sea on dry ground. But also you see here in our passage, in uh, Exodus chapter 17, that God also acts through Moses. When Moses holds up his hand, both his hands actually, uh, the the Israelite army fighting against Amalek prevails. When he lets his hands down, Amalek prevails. So in both of these ways, we see that God is pleased to work through his servant Moses to affect something in redemptive history, here saving his own people. It's very clear from the text, though, that God is the one behind all of this. It's not Moses doing this, It's the Lord. And that's why at the end of chapter 17, uh, Moses says, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is the one who's done the work. So because Moses is God's chosen servant, when Moses acts, it reflects God's action. Likewise, when God speaks to Moses, it reflects that um, Moses is God's chosen servant. God's use of Moses speaks to the fact that God works among his people in a special way. That is, when he works through Moses, he's not working in a way that he would work, he is working in a way he wouldn't work among all people in general. Only in this special means does he work to reveal salvation. That is, that God loves his people Israel and ultimately speaks to them through Christ. That's why we call these activities special revelation. Further, the way in which God uses Moses typifies the way in which God 
um, uses Christ to save and preserve his people. In other words, when you read about Moses working in the special ways, it points to Jesus Christ in the way in which he works in the special way for his people. So it's no mistake that Hebrews chapter 1 talks about the fact that God used to speak to the fathers through the prophets at certain times, that is the Old Testament. But in these latter days, these present days, Jesus uh, speaks the word of God. He is the word of God uh, through whom God created the world and uh, the one who makes purification for sins. So Moses was a prophet through whom God spoke and Jesus is a prophet through whom God spoke and still speaks today in preaching. But of course, Jesus is unique. He created the world and made purification for sins. Therefore, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel, which is about the work of Christ, reveals the righteousness of God. His argument here is that the only way anyone can become or is righteous is through the work that Jesus Christ does on their behalf. No one can be saved. No one in this room, not I, not you, no one, can be saved unless you have faith in Jesus Christ, the special revelation of God. But in Romans, you see, Paul contrasts that special revelation with general revelation. Now, general revelation, that is the stuff you learn in the world, teaches you a lot. But it doesn't teach you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see. Therefore, in both the Old and the New Testaments, special revelation is essential. Through God's speech to Moses and through God's actions through Moses, both examples of special revelation, God's people are redeemed from Egypt and they are preserved in the wilderness. Likewise, God spoke to and through His Son, Jesus Christ, and used His actions, both examples of special revelation, to save and preserve His people. But, God also reveals His will in general revelation. General revelation refers to the way in which God reveals His will for the general welfare of humanity in the creation. So a great example of that would be a people, all people understand that you have to work for a living. So kids, you can't sit around your house all day. Eventually you need to go out and get a job. The creation itself tells you that. Why? Well, Proverbs says, look at the ant. The ant has food because he works in the same way you need to work. Okay, I get it. Or how about the government of the world? Everybody understands that there needs to be some sort of moral law. Um, God has revealed that in the creation. That's stuff we can read from the creation itself. So, in addition, God reveals in the creation that all people must serve Him or obey Him. That is, Paul also argues in Romans chapter 1 that His existence, that is, God's existence, is known in the world. And also, Romans chapter 2 says that the law of God is written on all the hearts of people So today people will say, I'm an atheist. Well, no, really you're not. There's some way in which you understand there is a God, but Paul says you suppress that truth through your own unrighteousness, your own excuses and your own made-up stories and fables. There is a God, and he demands your obedience. That is known in the creation itself. So all this is important to understand because in Exodus chapter 18 here, you see a fascinating example of the way in which general revelation works, 
not just in the general realm, but also in the church. Because Moses, the representative of God, listens to common uh, wisdom and applies it to the church. So the story is pretty clear. Uh, Moses has not seen his wife and kids for a while. His father-in-law, Jethro, brings uh, his family to him. And Jethro says, You know, Moses, I've heard the stories about what God has done for you and for Israel. But then Moses goes on to tell, tell Jethro more detail about the ways in which God has worked in Israel. And then in response, Jethro says, Praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. He is the one true God above all the other gods. And so this is a a confession of true faith. Uh, Jethro, this uh, Midianite priest, uh, now believes in Yahweh, the one true God. But now this one who's been a priest, a Midianite priest, all of his life, goes on to give advice to Moses, God's hand-chosen servant. So the way the story goes, it just happens that Jethro sees Moses working from morning till night, judging all the people. All the people come to Moses with their uh, problems, their issues, their disputes. Moses decides between the cases. Well, Jethro sees this and says, "Uh, Moses, this is a really bad idea. I mean, people are going to be sick of standing in line all day, and you can't surely do this for the rest of your life. You're going to die. You're overworked. You're a workaholic. Knock it off. So what he says is, this is what you must do. Choose men of integrity. That is, men who uh, are honest. They don't receive bribes. They're not into that. And choose men that fear the Lord and set them over different numbers, hundreds, fifties, tens, in the camp and have them settle the small affairs while you represent them and you also handle the larger cases. You be the chief judge. These would be smaller uh, sub-judges. Very clear. But notice, Jethro says in verse 19 that Moses should obey his voice as he gives advice and God be with him. It's very confident. And then when Moses takes Jethro's advice and institutes the use of these judges, this is used by God in the life of the church. Okay? So it's clear that at this point... Moses understands what God's law is and he's applying that law in the life of Israel and now he's hearing advice from his father-in-law, common wisdom, and applies it to that whole situation. So notice the text doesn't say God revealed to Jethro this is what he must do. Rather, Jethro just uses common wisdom and then it makes its way into the church. Of course, the big question is, why would God allow this former Midianite priest to inform the life of the church? And why doesn't God just reveal to Moses that this is what you have to do, Moses? Why does God allow this guy and his common wisdom uh, to make uh, an inroad, as it were, into the church? And by the way, this, this, this tension here is very interesting to, in the history of interpretation. People are trying to figure out why is this going on. So it is a big tension. But before we answer that, consider this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's chief mediator, learned and grew as a man from general revelation. So we confess that Jesus Christ is God and man. We don't say that the divine nature of Christ learned anything 
since the divine nature of Christ is divine, is God, and he knows all things. But we do see that the scriptures plainly reveal that Christ's human nature learned, that he acquired knowledge and developed as any other human being would. And this is very hard for people in the church. They think that you know Jesus Christ is some sort of superhuman being. No, he was an ordinary human being, also God. God and man in one person, Jesus Christ. But that manness, that humanity is real. And that's why you hear in Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience. And so it's absolutely mind-blowing that the eternal Son of God would become man and subject himself to this experience. Why did he do this? And why did Moses learn what to do in the church through common wisdom? Well, the answer is because God saves and maintains his people in the creation, not outside of it. That is, the creation is the arena in which people fell and now they still exist even after God redeems them. God saves his people and maintains them through special revelation, but that special revelation is received and understood in a common, general creation. That is, God doesn't speak into a vacuum, to a people in a vacuum. God speaks in a special way to his people in the real, physical world. Therefore, God reveals his will for the life of his people through general and special revelation because while God's people are saved and understand salvation in the church, they also still live in the creation. Because God's people live in the church and in the creation, they must learn and grow from things that are revealed in the scripture certainly, but also in the creation. Now, to understand this more clearly... Think of the structure of the way in which God has revealed his will. There are three major eras in old or biblical history. The first era is Adam and Eve's era before the fall. God revealed himself directly to them. The second era is the era after the fall before Christ returns. And there are two ways in which God reveals himself. Special revelation that we've talked about. Um, miraculous things like theophanies, God's word, and that's the only way you understand salvation. But also, God reveals himself during this time in general revelation. So in general, all people understand that there is a God and that he demands obedience. That's clear. But also, God has written, as it were, logic, order, and purpose into the creation so that people could learn. So that's why the Proverbs says all the time, hey, people that aren't so smart, why don't you look at the ant or this animal and learn? Or look at the cycles of the sun or the way in which the sea flows. All this kind of stuff shows you the order, the purpose, the logic of creation. So that answers the question about Jethro. Why is Jethro so smart? Because he learns stuff. He studied the way in which people work, how justice works. And he applied that wisdom and he shared it with Moses. That's the second era. The final era, of course, is after Christ returns and ushers his people into the new heavens and new earth. There you have direct revelation again. 
God speaks directly to his people as it were. There's always some sense of revelation because man and God are distinct. But you see Christ face to face. The big difference there is that you won't sin again. Three eras. The first is before the fall, God reveals himself directly. The second era is after the fall, before Christ returns, God reveals himself through special revelation, God's word, and general revelation, the world, our creation. The final era, the new heavens and new earth, in which God reveals himself directly again. Now, this structure is important to understand because you realize that until Christ returns, the church exists in the common realm. The church today exists in this common realm. Notice, after the fall, God chose to save and keep his people in the fallen world. So he didn't you know, snatch them up and save them on planet Zardoz or something like that. Some special place where nobody can see. No, he has kept them, he has kept you here in this creation which still speaks of the glory of God. That's why we sang Psalm 19 this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God. You understand that there is a God and that He demands obedience from the creation, but you also understand how to live in this world. Now the implications of this are enormous. So the church today receives common wisdom from the creation, just like Moses received information from his father-in-law Jethro. What's an example? Well, we're clear that in this worship service right now, we only do what God has said. God said, preach the word, do the Lord's Supper, baptize people, baptize infants, uh, sing songs, and so on. We follow God's word there. But also, we do things in the church on this Lord's Day that are common to human societies. What is an example? Lights. We decided that somebody had a really good idea when they invited the light bulb and we should use that in our worship service. Uh, Amplification of the voice. Uh, Chairs versus pews. Having a rug. Heating. Lighting. The time in which you worship. These are all things derived from common wisdom. The Bible doesn't tell you to have fluorescent lights or to use a microphone. Those things you figure out from the creation. Some really smart people said, hey, you might want to meet at 10 o'clock instead of 5 o'clock in the morning because I don't think people are going to want to wake up in this culture that early. So notice that things change from culture to culture. Other cultures might meet at different times. It just has to be on Sunday, the Lord's Day. But also, the fact that the church and those within its pale are to receive wisdom from the creation serves to reveal sin in the life of Christians. This is very important. Again, often, professed Christians believe that since they know Christ, they know everything. They think that they have some sort of transcendent wisdom of God. But that is manifestly not true. Jesus Christ. The man Jesus Christ learned from the creation, and so shall you. The impact of this false belief is that professed Christians who think that they know it all are offensive to non-Christians. The gospel will be offensive to non-Christians. It talks about the blood of Jesus Christ. It talks about his death. That's offensive to people. Not to Christians, but to non-Christians. But the behavior of Christians should never be offensive to Christians or to non-Christians. No, Christians are to be salt and light where? On planet Zardoz? No, in the creation right here in this world. 
And so when Christians think and act like they know it all, they are implicitly denying that they are being redeemed in this creation full of pagan neighbors. Please understand that. When Christians today deny, or rather when they think they know it all, they are denying that they live in a creation with other very intelligent people, other people that are also made in the image of God. So God's law here, against which we are measuring ourselves, says love your neighbor. Know your neighbor, love him or her. Do things for them. Exist in their context, their world. So the sin is, when you deny that by saying, you know what? I'm a Christian, I know it all. Therefore, I don't have that much to learn or really to interact with these non-Christians. So here are several examples. Today, uh, professed Christians will often engage what we can call Jesus-speak. That is, they insert the name Jesus or God in every other sentence or every other word. You know, praise the Lord, Jesus said this, Jesus said that, to their, their pagan neighbors, and they're like, what are you saying to me? So not only is it rude, uh, because you're just mentioning God's name in every other sentence, it's also many times blasphemous. I mean, ask your friend or your neighbor or others what the third commandment says. It says, you shall not take God's name in vain. So to be clear, yes, you may speak of God and Jesus Christ with your pagan neighbor. Absolutely. But there's a way in which to speak of God that honors his name first, that's the first issue, but also is not crazy. You have to understand that they need to hear the gospel, but they need to hear it in a certain way, not cram down their throat. And this relates very much to the the point that we actually, Christians actually take their social clues from non-Christians. We don't say that we take the law of God from non-Christians, but we understand how to act in our culture with Christians and non-Christians. We don't shut ourselves off from others. So again, Christians oftentimes are guilty of a terrible sin called rudeness, and not having manners. Where do you pick those up? Yes, the Bible, definitely, special revelation tells you how to act with your neighbor, but also some of those things you learn in the general culture. So when you go into Japan, what do you do? If you're going to stay with a Japanese family, what do you first do? You learn about the culture. You learn that there's X, Y things you cannot do in that culture or you will offend them, and vice versa. You understand the culture. And that is the point of what happens here in this text. Notice. Moses hasn't seen his wife and kids for a very long time. Here they are after years. And what is the first thing that Moses does? Well, what would we do in our culture? You would hug and kiss your wife, you'd grab your kids and kiss them. That's not what Moses does. He goes to the father-in-law first, hugs and kisses him, bows to him, and they go talk in his tent. They're like, what's that all about? Well, that is the ancient Near Eastern culture. You didn't dare deny or ignore the father-in-law. didn't mean that Moses disliked his wife and kids. He loved them very much. But he was operating according to social mores at that time. So it proves the Bible itself says you have to learn from the culture. So brothers and sisters, the sin here is that we kind of lock ourselves up into this Christian ghetto, want to shut off the rest of the world. That's sinful. It is good to spend time with Christians. It's good to have that influence. But you must also learn from the general creation. Yes, there's tons of bad stuff to learn out there. Ignore that. 
but also you are to learn from the general creation that is very clear. Well, finally, to seek to love your neighbor as you both live in this world, two different worlds as it were, it helps you to have a better appreciation for what Christ did in his incarnation. Just like God did not snatch you up and redeem you in a completely different world, Jesus came to this world, this creation, to become man. And that is what's so profound about the gospel. Jesus Christ took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He learned from the creation. He mixed it up with pagans. He was a part of the general culture. Yes, he and you shall deny the bad aspects of culture, but embrace the good aspects. But brothers and sisters, he did this for your salvation. He studied the creation, and more profoundly, he was counted, as Isaiah says, among the transgressors. Your sin was imputed to him on the cross. He became a curse. But because he became a curse and he went to the cross, he bore your sin on that cross. And again, God is revealing his salvation. He's working salvation in this general creation. That's what's so profound about it. It wasn't in a vacuum somewhere else. It was in this creation. All his blood, his suffering, his tears worked for your salvation. And through faith, the Father imputes the righteousness of Christ to you, you see. And that's why you enjoy salvation in this world. Well, in conclusion... First, God uses special revelation to inform His people of His will in their lives. In the Old Testament era, that revelation was often miraculous. After the Old Testament, special revelation is known in the Bible. Second, God also uses general revelation to inform His people as well as all people of His will. That means the creation itself speaks of the existence of God. His will for all people to obey Him and what it takes to live as a wise human being is found in that general revelation. Third and finally, God has saved you through Jesus Christ and that fact is known through special revelation in the Bible. But also you live in the creation of non-Christians from whom you know. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.